Okay, this morning's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Please follow along in your own Bibles or as the text is presented on the screens above. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to the sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness." When I was in uh, college, I'll start there again, that I uh, had a best friend and his girlfriend, who turned out to, they got married, but his girlfriend uh, made it known that she didn't like it when her boyfriend hung out with me. You know, I was not a good influence on him. <laughs> and... Um, and it's true. I, I, I think there's truth there. I had the, a greater capacity to to uh, party and stay out late and still get good grades. And he did not. And in, in fact, he did drop out of the University of Washington. So there was truth there. I tell you that just to... I want to talk about change. Now, this is uh, not really... This is just a detail. It's not that important, but I want to tell you it anyway. Uh, when I became new in Christ... Uh, the same woman still didn't like it when I hung out with her husband. For, for other reasons. She thought I would change him, you see. And Christ has uh, that effect on our lives. And here's, here's the point I want to make, though, is that I had a huge change in my life as I put on Christ, took off the old self, put on the new self. But what I didn't realize at the time, and I'm still not sure I fully get it, is how much that was just the beginning of all the change that needed to happen in my life and how deeply rooted were the things that needed to change in my life. I need to change, folks. And so I go on the assumption that we all need to change. And it's, it's just a continual process. God, I, I just, you know, the, the T-shirt that says I'm a construction project or I'm under, you know, all that stuff, that's true for each one of us. We are all in process of being changed. And change, is it easy or hard? It's really, really hard. I want to give you a C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you. The central part of you would be your heart, and uh, your will would be part of that. That central part of you, that part that chooses into something a little different than it was before. So every choice that you make changes you. It changes that center of you. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your your life long, you are going to slowly uh, turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. That's that's, uh, painting it very uh, boldly. But uh, I I believe he's right. So uh, the problem is... 
And we'll get into this in, in the weeks to come the, a little bit more. But the problem is that what is the, our choosers are? There's there's a chooser in us, right? We call it our will. There's something sick in our chooser. Your chooser needs to be healed. That part of you that makes choices. Do you know that? I mean, we've all made stupid choices, right? Yeah. Yes. And you know what that feels like. So uh, we'll, we'll be talking more about the the, uh, uh, the healing of our choosers. But uh, today we're going to be looking at how hard, why it's so hard to change and how we can change. And I want to give you... Um, a little bit of an outline here. How we, there, there's this language that some have picked up on the false self and the true self. We're going to be looking at that. How we become our false selves. And then how we become our, or more our true selves. And then we're going to end with a powerful resource as we focus on the person of Christ. Okay, so uh, as we look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, um, Paul is talking about idolatry, and he doesn't use the word idolatry, but if, if you look at some of the words he uses, they paint a picture of the Gentiles or those who have notoriously been apart from God forever. Um, they are futile in their understanding or in their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding. Their hearts are hard. Uh, he goes on to the, describe what in the Old Testament is called idolatry. So what I want to do is I want to start with how this false self gets shaped and try to make the case that idolatry is still very much a threat to each one of us. Uh, we live in a very idolatrous age, whether we want to call it that or not. By the way, the, the, the modern term for idolatry, the closest thing we have is the word addiction. So if that helps you to interpret that word into, uh, but it's not exactly the same, but it's really, really close. They share a lot of the same characteristics. So from the Old Testament, this is from Psalm 115, talking about idols. Their idols are, this would be like those people who are worshiping idols. Their idols are silver and gold. They're made by human hands. So people are bowing down to worship these pieces of silver and gold. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. That's just so powerful. In other words, he's talking about idols that have ears but cannot hear, but the people who make them and worship them, you become what you worship when you choose to worship anything, whatever it is, you become that thing. And it dehumanizes and you become a false person and false gods make for false people. This is a powerful text. Yeah, and uh, we'll get into this a little bit more. But the only way an idol can function is to deceive. You see, people who worship idols, they think they're life-giving, but in fact, they're death-giving. Okay, idolatry. Now, by the time of the New Testament, so this would have been written, who knows, 500 years before Christ, or we're not sure, but in those 500 years or whatever, that long period of time, there became a more sophisticated a more nuanced understanding of idolatry. And it would be one that we would uh, want to listen more carefully to today. Because the New Testament talks about the idolatry of the heart. So by the time of the New Testament, people were sophisticated enough to not 
at least in in this uh, in, in the uh, the area where the Bible or the New Testament was written, people weren't making idols out of gold and silver, but they were still idolatrous. And so Jesus talked about the idolatry of money, for example. And so the idols become inward. There's a recognition that an idol is in your heart. It's what you ascribe worth to. That's what the word worship means. What you ascribe worth to. And anything that you ascribe worth to more than God is an idol. That would be the New, De- New Testament definition. Now, in our own age, uh, one of, it depends on who you listen to, but one of the great authors of the age that we are now in, um, if, if you listen to my, my um, son and, and, and his wife, they love uh, David Foster Wallace, who is no longer with us, but I will say this, he was a very insightful writer. And he understood idolatry in a way that might be very, very helpful and revealing to us. So in his speech at, uh, it was a commencement speech at Kenyon College, he, he points out just amazing insight that those who make beauty into an idol will always feel ugly. That those who make intellect into an idol will always feel stupid. That those who make money into an idol will always feel poor. That those who make power into an idol will always feel weak and afraid. And those who make the opinion of others into an idol will always feel insecure. And then he goes on to say that, just like the text here, uh, in, in I think it's verse 19, but it says they continually lust for more. And so the, the, um, the remedy, because deception is such a part of idolatry, if you feel like if beauty is your idol and you feel ugly, what do you do? You just keep, you keep pushing the beauty button until you get a measure of beauty. But that's not going to be enough. You're going to feel ugly, and so you push it more, and you, you just lean more and more into that idol. You become more and more a false person. And so with intellect, you continue to try to get smart. And you'll get smarter, and you'll get richer, and you'll get something for a moment, and then the unhappiness sets in again. This is what idols do. They deceive you into thinking that you are going to change. But it's your false self producing a false you. And they cannot live. It's just like... um, if we have a candle lit, it needs what to stay lit? It needs oxygen. And this has been said about addictions, that an addiction cannot survive without lies. Lies are the oxygen that keeps an addiction going. False gods make for false people. Now, I, I'm, I'm sure this is all very conceptual and a lot of insight here that I'm sharing with you, but it, it's true. All of this stuff has truth for each of us. I want to go to the other side of this now, as um, 
Paul says to those in, if, in Ephesus, he says, but you didn't learn Christ that way. You see, Christ comes along into our lives and he talks about Christ coming with truth. And in the pictures that we have of Jesus in the New Testament, there's nothing in those pictures that would even hint at lies or deception. Wherever he comes, he exposes the false, the, 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 the lies, the deception. He declaws them. And he, his truth is what um, clears the way, it clears the air. It gives people a sense of reality from which they can build. That's Christ. And then it says, though, we are to put off, to, to put off, so you might think about clothing here, but whatever, to put off the old, take it off. And then to put on the new. And uh, many have, have, again, used the language of old self and new self and just using a synonym, thinking of false self. The old self is a false self, and the new self is a true self. You can use that if you'd like. That's helpful. But the, the language of, of taking off and, uh, and putting on, or putting off and putting on, it's, it's written in a way in the text where it's something that you do once, it looks like, it's in the past. But that's, not, that's true, but it's more than that. It's a continual putting off and putting on. We lived in Alaska for a long time, and if you, were, if you had a bucket that you left outside and you wanted to have some water in that bucket, guess how many times you had to go out and break that ice? It's, it's like that. Every day you have to go out and break the ice. Every day you have to put off that false, the false stuff that's coming into your life that's produced by those gods. And every day you have to uh, put on the new in Christ. It's continual. It never ends. This is where, back in, when I became a Christian, I did, just didn't realize how ongoing this whole thing is. It just keeps going. The day I die, I hope will be a day where I'm still changing. It's just, I'm on a trajectory. God's not done with me yet. So uh, we can say that that, uh, it's continual. But, um, you know, I better look at my notes here. I might might get way, way, way off course here. I'm just getting started. That was the introduction, yeah. The language is language of new identity. So it's not language of new behavior. Now, Paul will touch on behavior oftentimes, but what he will do then is usually tie it into your new identity. In the, in the book of, or letter to the Ephesians, Paul is really, really big on, if you can decide on who you are, then you'll know what to do. So it's kind of, it's that being first and then doing. And so what we have here is a new uh, identity. There's the old you and the new you. Which one are you going to live from? Which one are you going to feed? Will be another question to ask because your choices will come out of which self you feed the most. I had a what I considered at the time. <laughs> my I, this was years ago and. Um, I, I, at the, after I was finished on a Sunday, I felt like, well, that's the worst sermon I've ever preached. 
and um, since then I've had other <laughs> recurrences of that feeling. Um, but yeah, it's part of the deal. And uh, what was really encouraging, though, was about 10 days later, I, actually I spoke on something related to this topic, and about 10 days later, a guy named Mike called me up on the phone, and I had spoken about moralism uh, as being kind of operating out of the false self and that, that a, what a moralist is is somebody who wants to make that old self better to have a self-improvement plan for the old self and that's, that's exactly what Paul is not saying and I, haven't we all been tempted to do that we're, we're going we're gonna to take that old self and make it better and it, and it just you know it's, it's just our instincts go there and there's a whole better way to do it that um, it's really about getting rid of the old self and putting on the new self. But anyway, Mike said, I've been a lifelong Lutheran. And um, I don't know if there's any lifelong Lutherans around here, but uh, he said, I, for the first time, I realized that that's what I was doing. I'm really just a moralizer or a moralist. Somebody who's trying to put, who's keeping the false self on and trying to make it better. And he said, I feel like... I'm converted. I don't want to do that anymore. And we actually uh, rebaptized him or whatever we did, I can't remember. But it was some way of, of making, of, where he could say, I want to be new. I want to be that new person in Christ. You see, and if you only take off the old self and not worry about putting on the new self, that's what it's always going to feel like. It's always going to feel like morality. I can't do that anymore. Nope, can't do that anymore. Can't do that anymore. Christians don't do that. Nope. But you have to fill yourself. So Paul, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, the next chapter, he says, don't get drunk with, a, with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's one thing to not get drunk with wine. It's another thing to be filled with the Spirit. We used to have a 15-acre farm, and if you don't, if you don't use that, some of that acreage to do something with, it'll change. Land has a way of, things grow. Blackberries and, and weeds and all kinds of stuff will grow. If you have an empty house that sits empty for a long period of time, what happens? Unless it's filled with people, bad things happen. I mean, it, the windows get broken and the bad people come in. And, you know, so it's not just a matter of getting rid of the old. It's about putting on the new. Getting into that new identity. So Augustine in the 5th century... Um, Augustine was an amazing person, an absolutely amazing person. And when he was young, he led a very uh, a life of debauchery, is what I think he would say. And so one of his famous prayers is, Lord, make me sexually pure, but not yet. <laughs> that was out of that period of his life. Years later, after he had become a new person in Christ... One of his own old uh, uh, prostitutes that he had visited ran into him on the street. And she said, Augustine, come with me and we can do what we used to do. Augustine, Augustine. He wouldn't pay any attention to her. And she said, Augustine, it's me. And he turned to her and he said, I know it's you, but it's not me. 
He's a new person. He's a new person. You can't do that. His old self did that. So uh, it's a matter of identity. And then the uh, other thing that I want to say before we get to the closing here, but this whole thing, how it happens, there's a bit of a mystery here, how we change and what's our part and what's God's part. So I want to just touch on that real quick. There's a theological term for it. It's called synergism. And if you think of what synergy is, it's two things acting together to make something happen. So God has, you know, he's, you're not going to change without God, but you're not going to be changed without cooperating with God, participating with God. That's the point of synergism. So I want to, uh, these are C.S. Lewis quotes. Uh, I believe they're both out of chapter, I think it's chapter nine of Mere Christianity. And this would, this would capture part of it. You must realize from the outset that the goal toward which he is beginning to guide you is absolute perfection. That's hard, that, that in itself is hard to believe sometimes when we look at ourselves, but absolute perfection. And no power in the whole universe except you yourself can prevent him from taking you to that goal. And here's another quote. But I cannot by direct moral effort give myself new motives. After the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can be done only by God. So God wants to take us somewhere. And how are we going to get there? We can't get there without him, but we're the only ones that can prevent us from getting there. Does that... They're both true at the same time. And so this is what the New Testament calls frustrating the work or quenching the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We don't have the capacity to produce change in our lives. We have the capacity to not allow God to change us. That's another way to say it. And it's a mystery, and I don't get it. Paul says to keep in step with the Spirit. That's something like that. But that's... that's yeah, and it's work. It's work. Have you ever surrendered your will to somebody else? <laughs> Maybe your spouse. It's work. I hate it. She's right. I'm wrong. I hate that stuff. I surrender. That is work, work, work. But the work increases my capacity to receive good things in my marriage. The work that I do spiritually, where I surrender to God, I surrender my will to Him, allows me to receive all the grace that He has for me. So it is, it is work, but it's to allow His grace to expand. I don't know. I, I'm doing my best to try to describe it. This is the growth that God wants for us. Okay. The last thing I want to say, uh, and uh, I want to give us... Uh, I'm setting you up for something here. And hopefully if, you know, if you're not a Christian, I mean, I hope all this stuff is sort of like, oh yeah, I would love that. I want to change. And if you are a Christian, I hope you're saying, oh, I, yeah, I get it. I need to change. How am I going to do that? I hope you're asking those questions right now. And I'm going to give you a powerful resource um, to do that. And um, so I want to start by, by saying that uh, the, in, in that verse 23, it says that something happens to us. So 
there's what we just talked about, that we have an active role and we have a passive role in this whole thing. And, but the active role for us is to put off the old self and to put on the new. That's an c- imperative given to us. That's, that's for us to do. Put off the old, put on the new. But in verse 23, it says, as you were doing that, you will be made new in the, in the attitude of your mind. So that's God's work. As we are putting off and putting on, we will be made new in the attitude of our mind. Now, the, the, the phrase attitude of our mind, it's also interpreted as spirit of our mind. And it's something, not the mind itself, but it's something behind the mind that is informing the mind and helps you with your chooser. This gets into that, you know, in developing our will or our choosers. And... Um, and the, the, it, the interpretation might be, at least for us, it, it might be the word imagination. Imagination. And I want to just suggest to you that the imagination may be the most powerful part of who we are, as who you, of who you are as a human being. Your imagination uh, is powerful. Now, we tend to think of imagination in terms of creativity, and somebody who has a big imagination is able to think creatively outside the box. And that's okay, but that's not what the Bible uses, uh, to def- how it defines that term in the Bible. In the Bible, it, it simply means to have these powerful images or pictures that draw you. They're, they're, um, they're internal but they, they get activated and they, it's like gravity. It just, they produce this tremendous draw upon your heart and your mind. Um, if I were to say the, the word, um, I'll just pull something out of the air here, bacon. And some of you, and it's not a big deal to others of you, you, you can actually hear the sizzle and smell the smell. I mean, you're going nuts right now. Your mouths are, your your taste buds are activated and your, your glands are working. And it's your imagination. You see how powerful it is. Dark chocolate, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's just, um, so God made us in that way. This, Nowhere in the, in the scriptures, I mean, you find it, a lot of evidence for it uh, in, in many places in scripture, but certainly in Genesis chapter 3 where the woman, you know, she's been told, given one commandment, and that is to, to not eat from that one tree. And maybe like us, it's like the one tree that would fascinate us the most, right? If somebody tells you not to look at something, don't think about bacon. Okay, right. I mean, it, it's just, it, 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 so anyway, she, she begins to focus in on this tree. And you can see what happens in her imagination here. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. You'll see, how, that's the power of the imagination. It's good for food. It's practical. It's pleasing to the eye. It's beautiful. And it's good for wisdom. I mean, it's spiritual. And she, she allows, as she looks at that fruit, as she looks at the fruit of that tree, it, she allows her taste buds 
to get flowing. And remember, God's word is saying, don't do that. But her, her idol, that which is bigger than God, which she desired more than God, takes over. She becomes a false person as a result. That's the rest of the Bible. We have evidence of that. The imagination is so powerful. You know, back to the, the choice thing. What Lewis was saying is that you are what you choose, basically. You are what you choose. And what we're saying here is that you choose what you love. And to reshape those loves, the imagination has such power to reshape your love. So I want you to consider your imagination as that powerful resource that you have. Now, what would I want, if I could just say one thing, what would I want to be in my imagination more than anything else? What would the scriptures say would be, and this is, this is where you can give that answer that answers most questions that a pastor is going to ask you. What would it be? Who's the most beautiful person in scripture that I would want you to look at? Jesus. So what I want to do right now is just invite you to do that with me, and, and we're going to go through a spiritual exercise um, that hopefully will have a good effect. So if you would stand, I want you to stand because I know that you'll be more alert. Just go ahead and stand. I, I know I understand how it works. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you to, just like um, Eve did, to turn over in the palate of her soul, she turned over the image of that fruit. And in the palate of your soul, in your imagination, I want you to turn over the person of Christ. And I'm going to just, I'm going to try to provoke your imaginations right now. Though, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you're going to have a great advantage, but if not, I'll give you some things to work with. So go ahead and close your eyes and picture Jesus Christ at his baptism. It's the first time we get a glimpse of the adult Jesus at his baptism. And his father says to him, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. What a beautiful picture of the father and the son. And then there's the picture of Jesus right after that as he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil, by the false gods that are offered up by the devil. And Jesus is able to say no, no, Because his imagination is filled with a love for God. And as you see Jesus saying, no, don't you just love him? Don't you just want him to be in you, helping you to say no? And as you picture Jesus gathering little kids to himself with a smile, welcoming them, don't you just love Jesus? And as you picture Jesus sitting down at a well in Samaria with a Samaritan woman crossing racial and gender barriers that were never to be crossed, don't you just love Jesus? Allow the pictures of Jesus that you love to come into that attitude of your mind, into your imagination now. Maybe he's eating with sinners at a table and you can see yourself there having a great time with Jesus. Don't you just love him? 
washing the imperfect disciples' feet, restoring Peter after Peter has had a horrible three-part meltdown. And because we all know failure, don't you just love Jesus? And then as the ultimate is maybe to picture Jesus on the cross as he's enduring pain, as tears are coming down his cheeks, as blood is coming down his body. And you see him looking at you through his eyes saying, I love you. Don't you just love Jesus? And maybe you can see him alive now. You know, the scriptures invite us to see him alive now. And they tell us plainly that right now he is praying for you. Don't you just love Jesus? He's praying for you and me right now. And then beyond that, there's a day that's coming where his kingdom will come in fullness and the new Jerusalem will come down. The new heavens and the new earth will come down. And all the things that we read about this week that are just awful, yucky, how could this world be this way? And we can look forward to Jesus coming down and speaking truth and making things new. Don't you just love Jesus? Lord, fill our imaginations. Fill them with the stuff that is good. And keep us from those dark places. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this Bible that gives us images, pictures that are so powerful and that shape us. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.